Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we're chatting with Nick Sharma, who uses his training in molecular biology 
to better understand the science of great cooking. Sharma explains why he might consider fat to be its own flavor, just like sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. And he reveals the science behind some of his best recipes, such as spare ribs in malt vinegar. I like the smell of malt vinegar because it's such a unique flavor. But with meat, it really does a beautiful job of not only working on the flavor and the aroma, but it also helps change the proteins inside. So as the meat's cooking, the collagen is changing into gelatin. So the overall result is something that's so tender, but all of this coming together through acid. Also coming up, we make delicious Austrian goulash, and later Dan Pashman reveals what he's learned about the human condition after making a food podcast for the past 10 years. But first, it's my interview with New York Times food correspondent Kim Severson about her article, Seven Ways the Pandemic Has Changed How We Shop for Food. Kim, welcome back to Milk Streets. It is always my pleasure, Chris. How are you? Pleasure having you. Um, You recently wrote a piece called Seven Ways the Pandemic Has Changed How We Shop for Food. Uh, Let's just start with the list. Well, we're shopping less often and have bigger baskets. We're shopping online more. Um, Interestingly, we are buying a lot of oranges (laughs) as well as other produce. There are fewer items in the grocery stores for us to choose from, um, but apparently we don't care. We like the tried and true things. Um, Frozen food is getting a resurgent. There is wind beneath the wings of frozen food. And people are really much more aware of the supply chain. They're shopping local, looking to local farms, local chains, even turning to restaurants for provisioning. So local is big, as we've been saying, for 700 years in the food business, but now it really is. <laughs> um, so you say, this is so interesting, you say this last few months has been a behavioral scientist dream. Uh, why is it a dream for these folks? I mean, imagine you had an entire nation that had one behavior that was forced to change within this very condensed period of time, right? So before the pandemic, uh, you could get something to eat at the Ace Hardware and the Costco and the movie theater was serving hot dogs and nachos and everywhere we went, someone else could cook our food for us, right? So just in the blink of an eye, we went to having to make our own food. And that, that shift is um, it's a phenomenal shift to have been made in such a short period of time. And within that six months, have been some really interesting um, behavior changes. The first one, of course, uh, we all began hoarding food, although the people in the food industry like to call it the initial pantry filling, which I thought's a lovely euphemism. <laughs> uh, then we entered a, a real nostalgia phase, which I think food manufacturers are still riding. And we turn to um, Oreos and, you know, boxes of cereal that we only bought when we were kids. Just any, it was sort of all bets are off and we're just going to get comforted and go back to foods that made us feel better as kids. And then pretty quickly we entered into this culinary period, right? So uh, there were sourdough starters everywhere you looked on social media. Somebody asked me once if I wanted to join a kombucha club that they were starting. (laughs) I hope you said no. Uh, You know, there were... (laughs) Well, I'm like, who's got time for a kombucha club? I've got reporting to do here. Um, but, you know, and we but then we got into kind of more elaborate culinary stunts and people were cooking and cooking and cooking. And that was kind of a nice thing. The nostalgia thing is interesting as well. I just found out that uh, General Mills 
announced that it's bringing back retro recipes for four of its most popular cereals, Cocoa Puffs and Golden Grams, and they're returning to the 80s formulation. So I find this nostalgia moment in food marketing sort of fascinating. So are the people buying Lucky Charms and Little Debbie's the same people who are joining kombucha clubs or these different folks, you think? Uh, Actually, based on my private survey of all my foodie friends, I think (laughs) there are more Little Debbie uh, people who act as if they are sourdough starter people, but really are Little (laughs) Debbie people. I'll just share that with your listening audience. There are two totally opposite trends that you talk about. One is you mentioned that the the very top items are being uh, promoted heavily. But then you write that consumers are also trying new foods, but the, the supermarkets seem to be really focused on the best sellers. It's, well, it's interesting. This, these may be new products to the consumer as opposed to new right. products that manufacturers are putting out. So, uh, and it's particularly interesting with frozen food. So you had, frozen food was going through a little quiet revolution, you know, the cauliflower rice sort of revolutionized vegetable sections of, of frozen food. So suddenly there are all these new shoppers who are exploring the frozen food aisle for the first time and they're finding products that they really liked. And one thing I think super interesting is I think people are realizing they don't want as much choice hmm. as they thought they did. The pandemic, it's slowed culture down a little bit and people are being a little more thoughtful about what they really want to consume you know, maybe we don't need to have a seasonal Oreo every two months. Well, that would be my great hope. But now they're taking away my seasonal Oreos. I just don't know. Where I know. To turn. And your cotton candy Oreos. <laughs> right. So candy sales are way up, according to the stats. Uh, Hershey's, I think, went up over 20% just in March. Well, that's a, you know, again, that was March. And I think we were still a little bit in our. Um, holy crap, I'm going to just eat all these M&Ms because I do not know what's happening phase. Another thing that really jumped and I thought was interesting was peanut butter, which makes sense. You think, okay, we're going to store peanut butter in our hoarding period. But because kids weren't going to school, uh, they could eat peanut butter sandwiches for lunch because most schools prohibit peanut butter sandwiches because of peanut allergies. And if you want to make lunch for your kids in 2.3 minutes. Correct. <laughs> peanut butter is a really good way of doing that. Um, so I read some other articles, uh, and one said that personal hygiene products have gone down in popularity. Does that make sense to you? Well, perhaps we're not mingling with as many other people. Uh, Our families well, don't really care, Chris. <laughs> good, good point. I don't know about you, but I don't use a half as much hair product as I used to. If you have to go to the office or you're going out to the club, as I know you do frequently, Chris, you don't have to dress up as much. I don't know. I haven't worn a bow tie in six months, so that's something. Really? Um, Wait, yeah, that no, is breaking yeah, news. The world's ending. Correct. Um, you know, I, I think this is so interesting because we're talking about a major shift in everybody's life, and now we're going to find out how much of this stuff sticks Three years from now, two years from now, do you think we'll look back and go, what were we thinking and everything goes back to normal? Or are some of these trends going to stay with us? I wish I, I wish I knew the answer to that. So the question is, will this become the exercise bike in the corner with the clothes on it? Or will we be still riding that right. exercise bike? I think that there has been a significant shift. Uh, certainly people who 
felt uh, like they didn't have a lot of confidence in the kitchen or didn't think that they could just put mm-hmm. together dinner now know that they can. I think some of that will stick. I think the generation of kids who have been in a home where cooking was happening, that'll stick with them. I also think this is probably done more for community-supported agriculture subscriptions, for local dairies that deliver milk. All of these small businesses that were struggling have just been uh, hugely successful. And I think that has given them, the, those businesses, the capital to really build some infrastructure and stick around and not have to be operating on such small margins. Hmm. And I have no doubt that the uh, manufacturers of Little Debbie's and seasonal Oreos will be just back in the game as soon as they possibly can. But we can also make better informed choices and realize that maybe we can make cookies at home. Kim, thanks for being on Milk Street. In two years, we'll have you back and we'll have to uh, compare notes. Thanks. Uh, We'll see. We'll see how my predictions work out, Chris. That was Kim Severson. She's a food correspondent for The New York Times. Her article is called Seven Ways the Pandemic Has Changed How We Shop for Food. It's time to take your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So before we take the first call, I have a question for you. You spent time in France, of course, Yeah. at the urging of Ms. Child, I believe. Was there a meal you had or a dish you had that is the most memorable from that time in France? Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, I worked at a really wonderful restaurant and all the food there was great. But what I remember and took back with me and actually developed my own version of it, I used to go to Paris on my one day off by myself and just wander into a restaurant and eat. And one day I sat at this little tiny restaurant on the Ile de la Cité, I think it was, mm-hmm. and I had a chicken liver mousse. And it was so extraordinary. You know, it was creamy. It was silky. It wasn't foie gras. It was chicken livers with wonderful toasted brioche. It was just the best thing I ever had. So, yes, that would be it. Was it the bottle of wine you had with it? Affect well, your, that always helps, of course. Yes. Your opinion at the time? <laughs> of course I would have wine, yes. Oh, um, that sounds so good. Well, okay, let's get back to work. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Marie from North Carolina. And where in North Carolina are you calling from? I am calling from Whispering Pines, North Carolina. How come I don't live in a town with a great name? Sarah, I mean, have you ever lived in a place like Whispering Pines? No. No. (laughs) It's good. It's good. How can we help you? Well, like a lot of people for the past summer, we have had a garden, and some things have done better than others, but our peppers especially the hot banana peppers. They just want to keep (laughs) reproducing and multiplying. And I've gotten bags and bags of these hot peppers. And I was wondering if you might have some suggestions of how to use them. I've shared them with, you know, neighbors and stuff, but there's only so many hot peppers that people want and (laughs) so many that you can, you know, throw on a pizza. Well, you just need more friends or neighbors, that's all. I mean, that's, yeah. That was my first thought is give them away. Well, they do make good pickles, right? And pickling them isn't hard. You could freeze them too, right? I mean, you could spread them on a sheet tray, seed them, et cetera. 
freeze them and then put them in a bag once they're frozen. I think they'll keep pretty well that way. But I think pickled, of course, if you have bags and bags, how many pickled peppers yeah, how do many, you need? How many pickled peppers can I pick? No, um, yeah. I think, you know, a few jars would probably do it for you, but they're good. Uh, I, I'd freeze them. Are you suggesting like a quick pickle? Well, you can do a 24-hour pickle, right, with vinegar, just an overnight pickle and keep them in the fridge, right? That would be one thing. Or you can really can them. You know, you can have a real brine. Mm-hmm. It uh, depends mm-hmm. how long you want to keep them. You know, they're good. But again, how many jars can you use, right? Yeah. The ones that I didn't give away fresh, I'll now give away pickles. There you go. <laughs> you got two shots at the same, it's the same thing. Yeah, Christmas is taken care of. I was going to say also, if I was going to freeze them, I would first roast them, get the excess liquid mm-hmm. out of them, peel them, and then freeze them. Because the more liquid you get out of them, the better they'll freeze. And I think the more flavored they have if you roast them first. As far as the roasting, I don't have a gas burner, and there's so many of them. You could just do it in the broiler. Or on the grill. Oh, grill too. Broiler or grill. Either one is good, or even in a cast iron skillet. Heat it up high and then char them in there. Okay. The other thing you could do Mm -hmm. is to slice them up, you know, cut them into strips and saute them in olive oil and then freeze them. Okay. Again, better to cook them before you freeze them. True with any vegetable. The real secret is to uh, preserve them somehow in a jar and get a fancy little cloth top thing, you know, so it looks fancy. Oh, come on, Chris. Have you ever done that? It doesn't matter what's in the jar. It's just like this homemade thing with a good. nice little jar. Right. Make it look yeah. good. Right. The best thing you could do is get a big pot and cook them all down at once. A relish, a hot sauce, a chili sauce, something that you can do in one big batch. Yeah. That'd be great. And then just can them. Or freeze yeah. them. Or freeze them. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Well, it sounds like you got a good problem to solve. This has been helpful for me to talk through, so I appreciate it. A right. pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Marie. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Jonathan from New York. Hi, Jonathan from New York. What is your question today? I love making tahini and hummus, and the texture is always nice and smooth when I make them fresh, but after night in the fridge, they always seize and turn hard like concrete. Hummus that I order in from a restaurant doesn't do this. It's always still silky the next day. What can I do to make it last better, and what are they doing that I'm not? Well, I'm going to throw one thing out right off the bat. You probably need to add more liquid, period. But tell me how you make your hummus. Sure. So I follow the recipe roughly from the Zahab cookbook. I make tahini by mixing 16 ounces of tahini paste, Zoom brand, with three-quarters cup lemon juice, and then water it until it's nice and smooth to the right texture. And then for hummus, I use canned or boxed chickpeas, and then a lot of tahini, and blend until smooth. When you get that sesame seed paste, whatever Mm -hmm. brand it is, is there some oil floating on the top? Yeah, and I always mix it around. Do you stir it back in completely? Yeah. I know Chris is dying to answer this, but my quick thought is add more liquid to it or just add more the next day and it shouldn't be a problem. Okay, Chris, I know you just can't stand waiting with this one. Go ahead. (laughs) We use dried chickpeas and we cook them in lots of water And then we put them in a blender with some of that water and whip it up in the blender because we found when I was in Tel Aviv and my editor was also in Jerusalem that it's very light, served warm and whipped. So the proportion Mm -hmm. of hot cooking liquid to chickpeas is really how to make the base right. And then you could stir in tahini and lemon juice, whatever you want. But I think that's the technique that will give you hummus. And I've, I've made it quite a few times. And the next day, even in the fridge, 
it's pretty good. Yeah. I think using canned chickpeas is a little dicey and then making sure you add the hot cooking water to the cooked chickpeas and make sure they're fully cooked in a blender. So someone told me, or I read somewhere, that when I add the water to the tahini, that I should be using ice water. Does that matter? I think the key here is how you cook the chickpeas and whipping them hot with hot cooking liquid. You may have too high a proportion of tahini, which will get pretty solid in the fridge. Tahini seizes up when you add liquid to it, and you have to add enough mm-hmm. liquid so it then becomes loose again. It's that whipping with the warm cooking water that really does it. Just chickpeas in water? Yeah, you cook chickpeas in lots of water till they're really soft, put the chickpeas in the blender, reserve a few for the you know decoration at the end. It's Great. really light and wonderful. Great. Give it a shot. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks, really Jonathan. appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime with your questions, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Peter Schindler from Texas. How are you? Well, I'm good, thank you. Hanging in just fine. My major agenda right now is to figure out additions to a cornbread that would make it savory. Okay. And I'm pretty satisfied with the basic recipe for the bread. So what I'm thinking about right now is trying to think up savory things that I could add to that that would enhance it. What is it you've tried as a flavoring? I'm not entirely entranced with cheese because it makes yep. the texture heavier than I want. But I agree. fresh jalapenos yep. combined with chopped fresh pimentos is very nice. Yeah. And one of the traditional ones is bacon. I kind of got stuck after that and couldn't think of anything else. Are you using fresh corn in this recipe? It's all just cornmeal. I'm using cornmeal, polenta, and milked fresh corn. Wow. Which replaces cream corn. Peter, do you want to just explain for anybody who might not know what milked corn is? If you take a sharp knife and you cut the kernels of corn vertically before you remove them from the cob and then scrape with the back of the knife, you get a very flavorful liquid that looks kind of milky and contains all the good stuff in the corn, but there's no hull. So it's the closest thing I could think of to creamed corn. The only thing I would add would be um, I'm a big fan of some different kinds of peppers, like Aleppo pepper or Urfa pepper. But I think in Aleppo, it's a red pepper. It's a little fruity. It's not too hot. I'm not a big fan of fresh jalapenos and cornbread. I don't know why, but I think a nice dried chili would be a little more subtle. Hmm. I was going to say, how about chipotles in adobo? Yeah. Yes. That's a good idea. That's a good possibility. And then the other thing I was going to say would be sliced scallions might be nice Mm. in there. And finally, if you did want to add some cheese, how about some Parmesan? It would add a nice cheesy flavor without adding all the glop or the heaviness. I would just like to make a case, though. You know, cornbread's not a casserole. (laughs) I mean, there are times in cooking when enough is enough. Your recipe sounds really interesting. It sounds like you've been doing this a while. You might want to think about not messing with it. Something about the purity of great cornbread, like a great buttermilk biscuit, you know, don't mess with it. Mm -hmm. And then it's what you serve it with where you can get creative. Yeah. Well, I was just looking for variations mostly. Yeah. (laughs) Now this is baked or steamed or how are you cooking this? The one that I'm cooking is being steamed 
in a traditional English steaming tin. It's hmm. got that sort of hole in the center like yep. an angel food cake pan yep. Yep. and a seal over the top. Huh. It's wow. just nice. working like a champ. Very moist, I'm sure. I think you should go on Top Chef. <laughs> no, I mean, it sounds like you really know what you're doing here. Yeah. Your advanced cornbread. Yeah, I don't think he needed us really, Chris. I don't think, yeah. Yeah. You ever feel useless, Sarah? Yeah, I often. Right now. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake, you guys, you're the people that inspired me to learn to do this this way. Well, you've obviously surpassed us. <laughs> yeah, now, so you have. Congratulations, <laughs> Peter. Oh, Peter, thanks oh, for thank calling. You. Yes, thank Take you. Care. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks it was so too. much. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Nick Sharma about the science of great cooking. That and more in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, 
I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with trained molecular biologist and cook Nick Sharma. His new book is called The Flavor Equation. Nick, welcome back to Milk Street. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on again. The Flavor Equation, your new book. Um, I was intrigued because uh, you have a formula. Uh-huh. Of course you have a formula. You're a science guy. The Flavor Equation is emotion plus sight plus sound plus mouthfeel plus aroma plus taste. But the first thing on that list was emotion. And it, you talk about that in the book quite a lot. So how does emotion affect flavor? Yeah, so one of the things that I really wanted to do with this book, and you're right, I do like formulas a lot. Um, I really wanted to talk about flavor as the way I see it. And to me, including emotion was a very important aspect because when I cook when I'm happy, I generally look towards something sweet. When I'm sad, I'm probably eating something else or I may not be hungry. And so I knew that emotions were affecting the way I was perceiving flavor. So when I decided to write the flavor equation, one of the things I wanted to do was to go out and see if there was any research done on this topic. And of course there was. So when it comes to emotion and research studies, was there anything in those studies that really popped out that was uh, surprising maybe or unusual? Yeah, so there was a study that I came across which was about how people responded after games. So when their favorite team won or lost, people tasted food different. And I thought that was such a fascinating thing, where if your favorite team won a game, the food was tasting sweeter. If they lost the game, you were sad, and then the food was tasting sour. And so some of these things are so mild that we don't pay attention to in everyday life. So I thought it was really interesting that data scientists and behavioral scientists were kind of taking this a step further and seeing how it connects to life. Well, hence the expression, that leaves a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah. I, I guess there's some science to right. that. You also mentioned sound, uh, and I interviewed Heston Blumenthal. You mentioned him in the book. Uh-huh. Uh, Well-known chef in England who does all sorts of crazy things with food. Uh, and you mentioned he had a menu called Sound of the Sea, and he'd play the sounds. I guess that he had an iPod or something. So when you say sounds... Is it just the sounds of the food cooking, or do you are you more a Heston Blumenthal kind of guy? I, so I'm a home cook, and for me, I remember reading Heston Blumenthal's research, and I also spoke to 
the people at Alenia. And I also spoke to people who had lost their sense of sight to kind of understand how they were all cooking mm. in the kitchen. And everybody was looking at this from a different perspective. Chefs were looking at it more to create this ambiance or this experience and tell a story. But when I spoke to people who had lost their sight or had reduced uh, vision, they were then relying on different senses to try and understand how to get about in the kitchen and cook food. And that was really fascinating because um, I remember talking to a person who had lost a sight and he told me about how the sound of water is different to him, depending on temperature. So if the water is hot, it kind of felt more denser when it dropped. And I thought that was really fascinating. And then I kind of started to tie these things to the way I was cooking in the kitchen. And so one of the things I realized that often I could tell by the sound or by the pressure how soft things are or how firm they are to cut through. You know, when you're frying spices, you can tell when the spices are ready to be taken off the stove and the crackling sound stops. And we're paying attention to sounds as endpoints in cooking or as a gauge of doneness or firmness or whatever. But I kind of wanted to draw that in and call it out because sometimes a lot of these things are so embedded in our subconscious, we don't pay attention to them. So I felt that, okay, let me pay attention to things that I'm doing in the kitchen and talk to people who are also paying attention to sounds and see how that's affecting our um, style of cooking. When I got started in food back in the uh, 80s, it was sweet, sour, salty, bitter, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then your mommy was added, and now you come up with a list of chapters. You have saltiness, bitterness, sweetness, savoriness, but you also have brightness, uh-huh. fieriness, and richness. Yeah. So do you think we, it's time we sort of threw out sweet, sour, salty, bitter because it's just not encompassing the wide spectrum of taste experiences? You know, that, so that's one of the things that defines a taste is the scientific taste committee. There's a, there's a committee of scientists that defines what tastes are. And they have certain rules, which I put in the book. And umami, for the longest time, had a lot of problems trying to get in. So all of the Japanese scientists that were behind umami research spent years trying to develop experiments to prove that umami could stand alone as a taste. Brightness in my book refers to sourness or acidity. So that's a canonical taste and it's well known. But in other cultures, there are other tastes which we don't really acknowledge because there is still no concrete evidence for them. And I know for a fact that people are looking into this stuff. And one of the things that I really wanted to do was talk about the taste of fat or richness. And there is a growing body of research that there might be certain receptors involved in us appreciating the taste of fat. Of course, there are different aroma molecules and all those things involved, like coconut oil comes with aroma molecules. But I think it was time for me to kind of bring that in and talk about it as a potential taste down the line. Let's talk about recipes, because there's these are very Nick Sharma recipes. Okay. <laughs> uh, grilled hearts of romaine with chili pumpkin seeds. What, what's going on there? So with the romaine lettuce salad, which is grilled, I wanted first to explore the idea that lettuce, even though we really don't think of lettuce as something that has carbohydrates, the, you know, the most common thing that comes up is, oh, lettuce has a lot of water. But there are carbohydrates based in those cell structures. And so I do the caramelization and the Maillard reaction uh, by grilling them. And then with the dressing, I wanted to use a dairy-based dressing. And so you've got Greek yogurt, you've got pomegranate molasses that are providing acidity. There's also the 
lime juice that's helping with that. And so this recipe kind of shows you that you can use different food acids in combination to produce new flavors instead of just using one. Spare ribs in malt vinegar. That really appealed to me. You want to talk about that? Sure. So I like malt vinegar because it's such a unique flavor. But with meat, it really does a beautiful job of not only working on the flavor and the aroma, but it also helps change the proteins inside. So as the meat's cooking, the collagen is changing into gelatin. So the overall result is something that's so tender, but all of this coming together through acid. Um, spiced fruit salad. Okay, so the spiced fruit salad, I base that on the Indian fruit salad, which is called fruit chaat sometimes. Basically, in that, what's done is they use um, Indian black salt, which is called kalanamak. And so that contains these sulfur-containing substances. When it meets water, you can immediately smell the sulfurous aroma. A lot of vegan chefs actually use it to build... Um, the eggy sulfurous aroma in food. Now what happens in this particular salad, it's paired with a couple of warm ingredients like chilies and stuff like that, but you can put any fruit in there. And then you've got this salt that's going in there that completely changes everything. For the first about 20, 30 minutes, you'll smell this eggy smell and then it completely goes away. And then there's just so much unexpectedness when you taste it, which is what I like often with food is that to show people that you can use something as simple as salt, but it's a different kind of salt, but it changes everything. So did you ever think as you started down this road towards food science and cooking that food science would be sexy someday? I mean, this is like, <laughs> all, all of a sudden you're right, right at the right place at the right time where I, I remember starting with food science and it definitely was not sexy. But now it's, you know, it's gone from you know, textbooks, right? Yeah. To to being, uh, you know, the stuff of TV shows right now. Yeah. I uh, know. I didn't think about that because going to school, I was such a nerdy kid and biochemistry was always my favorite class. And I had a lab at home as a kid. Of like I remember my parents thought, okay, you know what? This We're going to encourage him in this. And I remember my dad taking me to buy test tubes and beakers and all this stuff. And so I would burn sheets in the house <laughs> and get scolded and, you know, reprimanded for all of that. But I burned a lot of stuff in my parents' home. But it was I was never told to not do it again. And so I've, I've always found science, especially biochemistry, to be such a fascinating thing because essentially it's telling us about things that are living but happening at the molecular level. Um, you know, someone recently asked me a question about freezing and mo the movement of molecules. And to me, I find that fascinating in the kitchen when it's happening in real life. For me, kitchen is a lab. I mean, it is a lab. You know, you're doing things a certain way because it's going to produce a certain outcome. It's when you flip things around, then you see a new outcome, or you might not. But that is a fascinating thing for me. Nick, thanks so much for being on the show, and congrats on the new book. It's always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me on. That was Nick Sharma. His book is called The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained in More Than 100 Essential Recipes. You know, the science of cooking is a tricky thing. The science of bread, for example, is full of strict rules about rising time and yeast, but the best bread I've ever had rises for six hours and doubles up on the yeast. Egg whites are supposed to be beaten to stiff peaks, but in fact, cakes turn out much better when whites are greatly underbeaten. Wood chips soaked in water for barbecuing don't absorb much water. 
think wooden boats. They just produce steam, not smoke, which adds absolutely no flavor. You know, food science is a lot like religion. There are deep truths, but truth always remains in the eye of the beholder. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Austrian goulash. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Um, as you know, I have in-laws in Austria in Salzburg, and there's lots of great food there. Obviously, the desserts aren't bad, but they have Tafelspitz boiled meat, which I actually love. But they also have a goulash, but it's very different than Hungarian goulash, which is more of a soup. This is thicker. It's based on paprika. It has some caraway in it. But the thing about it that's really wonderful, it has a rich, buttery foundation to it. It's not thin. And so, of course, in my enthusiasm for all things Austrian, we thought we'd make an authentic Austrian goulash. So how do we get started? Well, Chris, the first step is, of course, getting to the bottom of that sauce. And it's a pretty, you know, classically made sauce. We start with a roux. So we had tried some shortcuts. We tried not thickening it at all, and that was too watery. We tried a cornstarch slurry, and that didn't add any flavor. So we went back to the beginning, and we just sauteed some onions and butter, cooked in some flour, and that made a nice thick roux. Now, in order to add some flavor to that. We added caraway seeds and paprika, because of course paprika is the star of goulash. There's five tablespoons of paprika in this dish. The majority is sweet paprika, but we do add one tablespoon of hot paprika just for a little bit of kick. Now, here at Milk Street, we don't saute our meat for stews. We often use water instead of stock. We do things a little bit differently. In other words, stews for us are actually pretty simple to make. So how do we do that part? So we broke one of your rules, Chris, but not both of them. So we did use a store-bought stock. We just really wanted that extra meaty flavor here. But for this recipe, you start making the roux. You don't have to brown the meat. So once the roux is made, you add a little tomato paste and some marjoram and bay leaves. You whisk in your broth, and then you just nestle some beef chuck right in and and cook it from there. You don't have to brown it at all. But we want the meat to brown, so how do we get that? Yes, of course. So it spends two hours covered in the oven, but then for that last hour of cooking, we remove the lid, and that gives us a nice browning on top. So we have a simple stew, but it has that depth of flavor with the paprika. It has that butteriness from the roux. It has a little caraway. You can also serve it with dill, which is... The favorite thing to serve anything with except desserts in Austria. Catherine, thank you very much. Uh, An authentic Austrian goulash and not hard to make. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Austrian goulash at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman tells us what he's learned about food culture after 10 years of making the sporkful. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, 
and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter. A health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moulton and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mike Giglio. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing well this week. Where are you calling from? Land Lakes, Florida. How can we help you today? I had a culinary awakening years ago, and I've been trying to recreate it, and I wanted to get your advice on that. I grew up in Louisiana as a city kid, and when I was a teenager, I had the opportunity of dating a country girl who lived on the opposite side of the parish. And one weekend I was visiting and I met her Grandma Lily. Grandma Lily turned over to the refrigerator. She reached in there and she pulled out a bottle of buttermilk and then a mason jar of what I thought was some magic powder. And then somehow molded these perfectly white pillows, put them in the oven, and they came out of these golden brown pillows of pure joy. So over the years I've been trying to duplicate that. And this was a drop biscuit recipe that's worked out pretty well. But my wife said, hey, sometimes we'd like a biscuit that can stand up to a piece of sausage, which I figured out is a rolled biscuit. Is there something that I can do to convert my drop biscuit recipe to a rolled biscuit recipe? The biscuit that I'm the most familiar with is a cream biscuit, Mm -hmm. where the cream does double duty as both the fat 
and the liquid, meaning you don't need any butter. The biscuit mix would consist of flour, a little bit of salt, and baking powder, and a pinch of sugar if you're into sugar. And then you can mix the dry ingredients up and have them handy in your cupboard. And then when it's time to make the cream biscuit mix, just add the appropriate amount of cream. You mix it up, and then you roll it out, and you're good to go. Now, Chris may be able to help you with your original recipe. A rolled biscuit, you need to have fat cut into flour because you want to get the layers, which you need, like a pie pastry, and you also need the fat content in with the flour. So the recipe is two cups of flour, seven tablespoons of fat. You can mix it between Crisco or lard and butter if you like. I use a little you know, baking powder and salt. I also use a tiny bit of baking soda. And then I use buttermilk as the liquid. If you didn't use buttermilk, you could use milk, but I like buttermilk. That way, you get a slightly drier dough. You fold it in. I use a food processor, the fat into the flour like you would with a pie pastry. The cream biscuit, there's no fat in the recipe other than the cream. And that has to be handled very gently so it doesn't end up being tough. So that's why it's a drop biscuit. If you want real layers, you're going to have to cut hard fat into flour. It's also will take more turns and more rolling. You have to be pretty gentle with a cream biscuit, and that's why it's usually not rolled. What's the deal with that frozen butter? Is that what I want to use? You know, if the butter's cold out of the fridge and you don't let it sit around too long, you don't really have to freeze it, no. All righty. Well, I will try that and see what happens. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Yes, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a question, give us a call, 855 426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Kelly from Mesa, Arizona. How can we help you? I am interested in getting some advice on getting pulled pork out of the crock pot. I have had very inconsistent results, and I'm wondering what type of cut of meat you would recommend and any other steps that you would recommend to get a nice pulled pork? So, a few questions. Are you using a slow cooker or an Instapot? I have both, but I typically use a crock pot in part because it's so warm here, so we try not to right. turn our oven on. And what cut are you using? So, I've used both the prepackaged pork loin, and also I've requested a cut of shoulder from the butcher. And the shoulder was better than the loin, I hope? It was. Yeah. It was fattier, so it was tastier. First of all, always use a shoulder or a Boston butt, with a similar cut. I cut it into two-inch pieces. I trim off any big pieces of fat. It wouldn't take you too long. I would use the Instapot. I would not use a slow cooker, although you could. Okay. I do it twice a month. I use two or three pounds of pork. Actually, I'll give you a quick recipe. You could take three large onions, chop them coarsely, throw them in uh, the Instapot on high saute for 10 minutes. You may have to put it down to medium after a while, add a bunch of oil with it. It's actually an Ethiopian recipe. It's a stew, a wat. And then you had, believe it or not, a third to half a cup of spices, but nothing hot. It's like smoked paprika, regular paprika, etc. Saute that for a couple minutes. Add the pork, three-quarter cup of water, put the top on, put it on high pressure, Put the timer for 30 minutes and then let it sit for 15 minutes after it's finished cooking and then release the steam. So 45 minutes in the pot, it's phenomenal. 
and you can use forks to make it into pulled pork. You can do it in a slow cooker, you know, for five, six hours, but the Instapot or pressure cooker will do it in under an hour. Just use shoulder Sounds because wonderful. that, yeah, because the loin is so lean. The long, slow cooking is good for meat with connective tissue and fat, which breaks down. Sarah, you have? Well, I completely agree with the cut. I have to admit, I haven't used an Instapot, so I'm out of my league there. But Chris, I was just going to say, you know, for the traditional sort of American pulled pork, wouldn't you put garlic in there? The other thing you could do, we have a recipe for this, is put some gochujang in with it. That's the most amazing pulled pork you ever have. Sarah, you're just going to have to live with this. (laughs) Listen, I love this stuff. I think that we were looking for a traditional sort of southern pulled pork. Well, then you put some garlic and the traditional barbecue spices are fine. Do I need to get an Instapot? Chris. Yeah, you know what? I'm sorry. Or pressure cooker. Oh, I do have a pressure cooker. Well, that's... I have a pressure cooker and a slow cooker. Well, then you have an Instapot. Hmm. The yeah. only thing is the Instapot does, I have to say, you can saute in it. So it's all done in one pot instead of starting on the stove. So, Kelly, hopefully that's helpful. Thank you. Very helpful. Yes. Appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks my for pleasure. calling, Kelly. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Lei Fan, and here's my tip for garlic water. Many East Asian salads, such as smashed cucumbers, use minced garlic, which leaves a strong aftertaste. A substitute commonly used in Chinese street food is garlic water. Take a clove of garlic, crush or chop it, put it in a few tablespoons of warm water for a couple of minutes, then discard the garlic, keeping only the water. The water can be used as part of the salad dressing to impart garlic flavor with less aftertaste. You can strengthen the flavor by adding more garlic, mincing it, using hotter water, or leaving it in the water for longer. Enjoy! If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan, how you been doing? I'm doing okay, Chris. We've been uh, been partying a little bit here at Sporkful headquarters. I got to tell you. Do you have your own zip code? Is that is it that big? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. But uh, but we recently celebrated our 10 year anniversary as a podcast. I didn't know you were old enough to have a 10 year anniversary. The first couple episodes were mostly baby babble. <laughs> But you know, thank you. It's, it's uh, you know, I started the podcast in my living room, and my only hope was that it would someday be a full time job. So it's exciting that it has become even a lot more than that. But yeah, it, in honor of the anniversary, just for you, Chris, just for Milk Street, I put together a special list of things that I've learned being a food podcaster for ten years. So, what is the first one? Well, I should preface it by saying, like, you got into radio and podcasting, Chris, but you were a food writer and a recipe developer. And, like, you know, you, you've you been doing food for a very long time. Like, I had not done food when I started this podcast. I'm 10 years in, and I still don't know how to make a roux. That's one thing I haven't learned. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I, I entered this not knowing much beyond I love to eat, and I'm going to see if I can make that into a job. Well, you obviously have done that. Yeah. And but it, my guess is you probably do know how to make a roux. I, I, I know it involves flour and butter, maybe. Is that right? <laughs> Mix them together, something, something. So here's some things I learned, Chris. First one is this. We hear a lot about how food brings people together. And yes, it does bring people together, but it can also keep people apart. When you divide people based on what they eat, what they don't eat, what they like, what they don't like. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that a lot of religious dictates about what you can and can't eat were actually designed in order to prevent intermarriage. That's one thing I learned along the way. 
But overall, you go with bringing people together as the conclusion here? I think that more often it brings people together, but really the real takeaway is that food itself doesn't do either. Food is a tool. It's a mirror. That's right. Number two, see what you think of this one, Chris. I have learned that while there are many areas where conservatives tend to be anti-science, food, I think, is more often the area where liberals are anti-science. Wow. You're yeah, really getting it. into I it now. It. Okay. Go ahead and explain yourself. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you know, there's this very black and white attitude towards things like the idea of processed food, any kinds of additives, any kinds of quote-unquote chemicals. Oh. I mean, chemicals exist in nature. If you cook your food by the government's own definition, you are processing it. Now, obviously, there are valid concerns with ultra-processed foods and certain chemicals. But I think that many people who are totally enthralled with the idea of health and wellness and purity and quote-unquote natural, you know, there are poisons that exist in nature that will kill you if you eat them. And, and, and it, perhaps the only thing that may save you will be a medicine that was designed in a lab using chemicals. Like, like MSG, another example. We did a whole episode of The Sporkful on MSG. You know, like, like, I'm, I'm pro-MSG. Right. Well, yeah. And GMOs. You know, Bill Nye, who has, certainly has plenty of credentials in the science and, and speaking out about climate change, says, look, we're not going to be able to feed all the people on the planet without GMOs. And so I just think that there's more nuance to it. And the idea that, you know, natural good, unnatural bad is a gross oversimplification. Well, I just like to point out with attitudes like that on the radio, this will be your your 10th year of the podcast and your last. <laughs> <laughs> I made it much longer than I thought I would, Chris. Now I got nothing left to lose. <laughs> I, I, I agree with some of that. I, I do think overall, if you look at obesity levels and the quality of the diet in the United States, the way we process and market food certainly has not been, on balance, a good thing. But you're right. Right. No, there are valid concerns, but I think that too many people oversimplify yes. the, the, the the question, and it's not these I things agree. aren't so simple. So let's quickly move on to number three. <laughs> We're both still standing. Okay. Final one on my list. People are shockingly invested in the question of whether a hot dog is a sandwich. Yeah, this is one of those things. I think you got into this podcast, Sporkful, because of this issue. Because th this has haunted <laughs> you for a very long time. I was very passionate about this question a good six or seven years ago when it was a hot-button topic in the cool corners of the Internet. And now it just absolutely will not leave me alone. <laughs> Still, every time any public figure says anything, it blows up on Twitter and everyone's sending it to me. So-and-so said it's a sandwich. So-and-so said it's not a sandwich. For the record, a hot dog is a sandwich. But don't at me, people. No, I, I know that's your, your definitive last word on the topic. I guess the question is why does the definition of a sandwich loom so large in your view of the world and history? Yeah, I mean, look, people love to argue. People have strong opinions about food. But in particular, yes, the question of what is or is not a sandwich. Like, you know, I believe that an Oreo cookie is a sandwich. People get upset about that idea. Why has it captivated the cultural consciousness so much? I mean, the sandwich is kind of a great equalizer food. It's something that very many people eat. And so... It's a debate that everybody can have an opinion on. So, okay, so you've been doing this 10 years. You started out in your living room. You probably moved, I don't know, to your kitchen. Now I've moved all the way to my basement in the time of coronavirus. <laughs> Me too. Uh, 10 yeah. years, you, you can't go out and celebrate at a restaurant, I guess. What do you do? So we put the question out to our listeners, and they voted, and we, they picked their three all-time favorite episodes, which we are re-airing, each with a brand-new update. So we re-aired one called Searching for the Aleppo Sandwich, which is about our quest to find out what happened to a beloved sandwich shop in Syria. 
There's one called Katie's Year in Recovery about one woman's struggle with an eating disorder. And there's one called Notes from a Young Black Chef uh, that's a feature on Chef Kwame and Wachi. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we're updating all those brand new conversations. And um, it's been it's been rewarding for me to revisit those episodes and also to check in with those folks who I became attached to when we were making those episodes and hear how they're doing. Dan, congratulations on 10 years. Your move from living room to basement has been a success. <laughs> uh, and may, may you see the sun someday yeah. in the near future. May we all. Thank Thanks, you, Chris. Dan. Take care. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. You know, throughout history, leading thinkers have made their name by declaring that the earth is round or that energy and mass are in effect the same thing or that the survival of the fittest is the primary engine in diversification of the species. Dan Pashman's career, however, rests in part on the question of whether a hot dog is indeed a sandwich. One might comment that this reflects a downward trend in both science and philosophy, but I would argue that Pashman reflects humankind's unique appetite for both humor and irony. After all, these days, we all need a sense of humor. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinzaboff. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.